Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the first panel discussion where we're going to be looking back at the parliamentary scrutiny of the Brexit process. I think things like process, scrutiny, all sounds a bit dry and dull, but not to any of us who sat and witnessed the hours of the passion and debate, the political upheaval, and those shifting loyalties and the relationships under strain, and all of it so fundamental to the direction of the United Kingdom <coughs> as a whole, as well as of its nations and regions. Um, I hardly need to remind you the situation we're talking about. Theresa May with a tiny majority and then no majority struggled to press through her vision of Brexit. If it was a vision, I suppose, because uh, it could be described as an attempt at a pragmatic way forward. And as MPs uh, delayed or changed or blocked her Brexit vision, some called it a rogue parliament. And Mrs May herself berated MPs, accusing them of infighting and arcane political rise. So... Was it blocking the people's will, or was it doing what parliaments are supposed to do and making sure that the executive can't just do what it likes with no one much looking? Did the vital legislation needed to make the UK's laws work after Brexit get the scrutiny they needed? And in the end, did any of that parliamentary drama make much difference at all? So let me introduce our panel this morning in no particular order, um, but I'll start with the the two veterans, the dramatis personae, really, of uh, those struggles at Westminster. First, Conservative MP Sir Bill Cash. And uh, Sir Bill has been what we used to call a Eurosceptic for decades, long before Brexit went mainstream. He won his spurs, if you like, uh, in the battles over Europe in the 1990s when John Major was trying to get the Maastricht Treaty through Parliament with an ever-dwindling majority. So he knew all about the late-night shenanigans, ambushes, and generally how to be the stone in the shoe, the scratchy label in the collar <coughs> of the executive. He was also chair of the European Scrutiny Committee, and although Brexit was a long-cherished ambition, his, his aim this time was uh, still to make a, a bit of, uh, not difficulty, but keep the, Theresa May's nose to the grindstone to make sure that Brexit really did mean Brexit and not well, I was trying to be polite. You're sitting very close. Not in a meeting like this. No, very difficult. Well, on the other side of the philosophical divide is Dr. Sarah Wollaston, and she was elected as Conservative MP for Totnes in 2010, following an open primary, very unusual at the time, to select the candidate there. Before that, she was a GP and became the chair of the influential. Commons Health Committee. Now, Dr. Wollaston, I think, has been on quite a journey, initially backing Brexit. Don't forget, she changed sides during the referendum campaign to back remaining in the EU, mainly, I think, over the claim that leaving the EU would mean an extra £350 million a week for the NHS. However, her concern about Brexit eventually drove a wedge between her and the Conservatives, which she left to join the short-lived Change UK in the Commons, and then the Lib Dems, and she lost her seat at the December election. Right, turning to the people who've been watching them through all this, uh, Dr Ruth Fox is the Director and Head of Research at the Hansard Society. It's the independent research body into Parliament and parliamentary affairs. In addition to her academic work, she appears regularly on the media, as I well know, to explain sometimes inexplicable about Parliament, and she was a mainstay of uh, those crucial Brexit votes on BBC Parliament, describing and analysing what was happening. She's occasionally been tempted overseas working on Senator John Kerry's presidential campaign and as an advisor on political reform in Gibraltar. And beside me here, uh, Professor Adam Sigan from Leicester University Law School, where he's an expert on the relationship between national parliaments and EU institutions, and where the balance of power lies in the decision-making there. He's contributed to several House of Lords inquiries, looking at the involvement of national parliaments in EU affairs, and he's involved in the training of officials and parliamentarians to spot what decisions could and should be taken at a national level rather than the EU level. And I suppose, Adam, your job has changed quite a bit since Brexit, since some of those questions no longer apply to the Yeah, yeah I, I woke up on the morning after the referendum and thought that was a job. However, you managed to plough a new furrow, luckily for us. <laughs> Excellent. Right, well, we're going to hear first from our panellists, uh, who are 
going to speak for a few minutes about their um, own uh, views and have their own say. So let's start with uh, Dr. Sarah Wollaston. Well, thank you very much. I think just reflecting on your introduction um, and Theresa May berating Parliament, I think that she bears a lot of responsibility because she set the tone. And had she from the very outset taken a much more um, collaborative approach, um, both across political parties and across the nations of the United Kingdom, I think we would have been in a better place from the start. Uh, but uh, my experience as both the chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee and the Liaison Committee, the committee of all the select committee chairs, um, was, was it was really frustrating. Um, and I would broadly put this into several categories, looking back at how well Parliament was able to scrutinise this process. And, and I'd say that there were significant information gaps um, and very famously, it was like getting a blood out of a, blood out of a stone and we needed to, to resort to mechanisms like the humble address. Um, because, and in part, that again was something the government should have taken more responsibility for. That came about partly because of shutting down participation in opposition day debates. So actually the, me the normal mechanisms for getting information were cut off. And so we ended up with humble addresses to get, for example, the, uh, the impact analyses published. But even when they were forced into publication, I, I went along to the Treasury Reading Room, for example, expecting to have to spend several days there reading through the impact analyses. And I found on the whole of health and social care, it was no more than a four, few sides of A4. So there was an information gap. And that translated right through to things like contingency planning for no deal. And it's absolutely the role of select committees to have been able to hold government to account and scrutinise that process. But it was very frustration, frustrating just not to be given the information. And it wasn't just access to documents and information, it was access to individuals. Um, the Prime Minister himself refused to come to the liaison committee um, at all, cancelled uh, on three occasions, on the last occasion uh, with just hours of notice to do that. So in this you can meaningfully hold individuals to account who are at the head of this process, it makes it very difficult for Parliament to scrutinise. So I say there was an information gap, there was a gap in terms of access to individuals, but I think there was also to some extent the sheer volume of this um, for, for statutory instruments meant there was to some extent an expertise gap because MPs with the relevant ex expertise were often not available to sit on, on those committees and provide adequate levels of scrutiny. So as I say, at every level, I think there were problems. And looking forward, something the Liaison Committee commented on was we need a mechanism for making sure that those gaps are filled and that we're not duplicating because we have a raft of different types of scrutiny committee for Europe now. And one of the recommendations of the Liaison Committee report in Select Committee Effectiveness was to try and make sure that, uh, that we have a much more streamlined and coordinated approach moving forward and particularly uh, with issues like the trade negotiations. But I don't want to speak for too long because I'm sure these are all things we're going to cover. But as I say, there were very many broad areas where I think there were gaps in Parliament's ability to hold government to account on behalf of the public. And Sarah, do you think that those gaps were there because the information didn't exist or there was a conscious decision not to give you that information? I think mostly the latter, but uh, to, to some extent, the, the information just simply wasn't there. Even when it was published, I, I found it profoundly shocking how little detail there was uh, when the impact analysis was finally published, because this was all a necessary part of the process, and, and it was being, as a the combination of being deliberately withheld or just not produced. Right. So Bill Cash. What's yes, well, uh, just as a sort of quick um, uh, background, um, I've been on the European Scrutiny Committee for 35, coming up to 36 years. Um, I've been chairman for the last 10 years, and um, we're going to be reinstituted um, tomorrow. And um, I, I think it's generally understood that by many people that I'm likely to be chairman again. Uh, we'll see. 
Uh, but the bottom line is that that is a decision that can be taken tomorrow. But the bottom line is that um, during the whole of this process, uh, the key question, and you mentioned, Susan, about the Maastricht Rebellion and all that. You see, the reality is that this is about, and has always been about, sovereignty. Uh, sovereignty is not just an abstract, it's a reality. It's how you make laws, it's who governs, it's the issues of accountability to which uh, Sarah referred. And therefore, uh, the whole question of how the civil service itself creates the circumstances in which laws are drafted and things like that, legislation ultimately depends upon sovereignty. And of course, on above all else, the decisions that are taken by the electorate in general elections, as a result of which, by virtue of the majority that individual constituencies get, which translates into a government which is then in power, um, they make the decisions accordingly. The problem for the United Kingdom in the context of the EU is that this who governs question has been whittled away extensively, in fact fundamentally, from 1972 onwards. In fact, the European Scrutiny Committee was then there in 1972. It's been going since then, and it was set up uh, for the purpose of, of reviewing the legislation that came out of the EU at that point in time. In the 1971 uh, white paper, uh, it was clearly stated that we would retain the national veto and that to do otherwise would be an, a fundamental infringement of our national interest. And even went so far as to say that it would also, with, if the veto was to be taken away, would also mean, and by veto I mean the ability to say no to legislation that comes out of the EU. Um, and that wouldn't just apply to us, it would apply to other countries as well for that matter, of course. Um, that the uh, effect of um, uh, not re re removing the veto, and I'm using the words in the white paper, would undermine the very fabric of the European community itself. So there was a recognition at that time that the EU was a potential uh, vehicle for undermining national interests, and therefore also democracy. So that's the background which I think is incredibly important to understand. Um, in the more immediate issue of what happened in the last year, I mean, quite frankly, I, I, we haven't got time to go into it in great detail, and I could spend hours on this one, but the, 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 the people who did not want us to leave the European Union induced paralysis. And some of them were conservatives, and I say that to Sarah, she knows perfectly well what I mean, and I am completely and totally robust about this. Uh, they entered into an alliance with the uh, people on the other side of the house, claiming that somehow or other that they were enhancing parliamentary sovereignty, which was the biggest joke of all time. Actually, what happened was they induced paralysis. The British people had voted as a result of a, a referendum, uh, which was a sovereign act of parliament, which passed it, because you can't have a referendum because you want one, you have to pass an act of parliament. That was passed by six to one in the House of Commons, and that speaks for itself. We then had the referendum, and to the surprise of many people, we ended up with 17.4 um, million people voting to, to leave. And then the next question was, what do you do next? The short answer is the Notification and Withdrawal Act. And this is all about scrutiny. This is about what was going on in Parliament at that time. Under the Notification and Withdrawal Act, um, I recall it was around about 499 to 120 or something, voted for the notification of withdrawal. <coughs> then Theresa May made the Lancaster House speech, but then we moved on from that, which I thought was pretty good on the whole. It then moved on to the next question, which was the withdrawal bill itself. And uh, there are people in this room, I can see them because I know who they are, <laughs> uh, who know that I put forward a draft bill uh, back in uh, 2016, uh, around the time of the referendum, I think just before actually, um, and um, it set out the principles which I thought might reasonably govern the withdrawal bill. And in fact, the government more or less accepted that. So we got into paralysis after the debate got going because there were Remainers who did not want us to leave. And I, the Withdrawal Act itself was passed in 2018. Uh, on the 26th of June, it got royal assent. Uh, so uh, basically, in a nutshell, 
accountability has been employed right the way through this process, and Parliament accepted it, and the people accepted it. So the idea that Brexit somehow was an aberration or was diverted into some appalling undemocratic cul-de-sac is nonsense. It's actually been done thoroughly, and actually, I'm afraid there were uh, changes to the standing orders, which I won't go into their technical, which would effectively have undermined the right of the government to be able to bring forward its own business and implement it. So um, the, the, the real problem is that this whole process ha has now been, and this is the good news, has now been completely altered by virtue of the general election result, as a result of which the government now does have a majority, there is no more paralysis, uh, the government can get on with the business, but the European Scrutiny Committee, for example, will continue to be asking all the relevant questions and holding ministers accountable into the negotiations and onwards. I could spend more time on yes. it, but that's enough. Lots there to, to unpack. Thank you, Sir Will. Uh, moving over to you, Ruth. Um, what are your thoughts? Yes, I, I think it's worth thinking about the contextual factors because Brexit didn't necessarily, in the last three years, didn't necessarily need to um, take place in the way it has. Um, and some of the challenges and issues didn't arise because of Brexit. They influenced the Brexit process and drove us down the route that we have ended up going for the last three, three and a half years in the parliamentary deadlock. So obviously the first sort of major factor is you have this clash between representative and direct democracy as a result of the referendum result and the fact that a majority of MPs didn't uh, support uh, leaving the European Union are being asked to do something that they um, don't, don't support. That, that is, a, is a problem. Second, minority government. Obviously the, the, the government at the beginning of this process after the referendum has a slim majority but then with the general election in 2017 loses its majority. Um, and that, that influences the way things turn out. The House of Commons is not very well used to dealing with minority government, isn't terribly well equipped for it in the way that it, it operates. And one of the problems I think we can't, we can't exclude from this, this discussion is the style of Theresa May's government, her sort of leadership approach, the kind of the lack of openness, the lack of transparency, keeping things tight, um, not really trying to engage positively and constructively with Parliament and the difficulties that causes and doubling down on that, having lost her majority and continuing to treat the House of Commons as if she had the kind of majority that the current government ha has got, which, which created problems. Obviously, the breakdown in the functioning of normal parliamentary party activity, not, you know, the, 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 the differences and divisions within the parties caused by Brexit, but also an awful lot of other internal party problems, um, particularly on the, the opposition side, um, that influenced the way that, uh, that, that things turned out. I think the nature of the Article 50 process itself and the sort of the, the, the combination of the deadline and the, def the, the, the fact that um, you know, the, the, the status quo was not going to be the default position of the negotiations ended up driving the House of Commons down quite a narrow gauge approach to scrutiny, which all became about avoiding no deal. And there was therefore a lot of emphasis on procedure and process to, to deal with that uh, challenge. And we didn't really have the sort of broader gauge approach to scrutiny of thinking about what kind of relationship we wanted in, in the future. And I think a quite a sensitive factor, and I understand why it's sensitive, but it's worth having a, have, having a think about, is the knowledge and understanding levels that MPs in particular had about the way the <coughs> European Union operates and um, what this um, Brexit and the Article 50 process was going to involve. And to use that terrible phrase, I think it's fair to say, MPs have been on a journey over the last three years. Some of them are still clearly on it. Um, and, and I think it's fair to say that you, you know, the, there were some differences between the Commons and the Lords because of some of the uh, differences in understanding about, about the process. It didn't have to be this way. If you cast your mind back to the early months after the referendum, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of debate, there were a lot of ideas emerging about ways in which the scrutiny process could have been done differently. So Seema Malhotra, Stephen Kinnock, people like that were coming up with ideas for a joint committee, for a conference, a standing conference that would involve a joint committee of both houses engaging with civil society, with the devolved legislatures, sort of reaching out to interest groups and so on. That made no progress at all. And it's interesting to sort of 
tease out why that didn't get any traction and we ended up with effectively a scrutiny approach in which it was largely business as usual. If you look in the Commons, there really hasn't been that much institutional reform of any great significance that really feels like it was commensurate with events. Yes, you got the Brexit Scrutiny Committee, but we would have had that anyway because as, as, as soon as DexU was set up, there had to be a, a, a scrutiny committee to shadow it. We had the Statutory Instrument Sifting Committee. Um, we had obviously some of the Speaker's rulings, but beyond that, um, it, you know, the list of, of reforms is actually quite, quite small. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's was worth teasing out because if you think about it in, you look at the way that parliaments in other parts of Europe uh, were able to respond, the French National Assembly, the German Bundestag, both had Brexit committees set up before we did. Um, and there, is a, there are issues about the way in which the House of Commons is obviously managed, um, how it, uh, so much of a monopoly of initiative lies with the government in terms of, of reform, and I think that's something we're going to have to think about in the future. Uh, and in the, would you say that the level of scrutiny that Parliament can exert is, some of it is down to the character of the government of the, of the day, of the executive, rather than things that are necessarily in place because of the mechanics of Parliament? It, it, it is, it's partly the government, but it's also about who are the sort of the leadership figures in the House of Commons as well. I mean, people like Sarah as chair of the liaison committee, or the chair of the procedure committee, you know, they, they could have initiated inquiries into how are we going to handle this process? How are we going to bring people together to think about, you know, looking ahead, what is this going to involve? What are the demands? What are the challenges? That didn't happen. So I think, you know, the, the monopoly of initiative lies with the government. The government lays the motions, it seeks the resolutions of the House for, for change. Um, but clearly there were other players as well who could have stepped up and didn't, and the question is, is why. I also think you have to think about the impact of Theresa May's approach was quite corrosive of trust and confidence across the parties. And one of the things that the way the House of Commons operates behind the scenes with the usual channels and the business managers is quite dependent in you know, the greasing of the wheels through trust and confidence. And I think her, her government's approach corroded that. Professor Adam Sigmund, give us your thoughts. Uh, well, I, I, I agree with what Sir Bill said. I think it was a constitutional shock, the referendum result. And to that, and then I think the problem then arises that what became known as a Remainer Parliament has to deliver on that um, referendum outcome. But I think there were sort of three issues that I want to pick up on. One, I think I agree with, with, with Ruth, the minority. <laughs> Um, government context I think was really significant here in the sense that the composition of Parliament shaped the Brexit process to, to, to that extent and sort of leave and remain positions became quite entrenched and then they became no deal or deal positions and they may in the future become alignment or divergence positions as we go forward for the future relationship so I'm not necessarily sure we the, the names that we give to those disputes now has changed but maybe the disputes still exist um, even even after the, the general election. So I think that's one thing. And the second thing is that, again, this, this focus on, on the deal. Um, Article 50 creates this tantalizing um, sort of outcome of you would have a deal to leave the European Union with. And I think that was what Parliament began to very, very focused on. And Article 50 was a very difficult process because it's a process which Parliament had to follow. Um, but it wasn't really geared up for it. So structurally and procedurally, I think Parliament, I think as the government, both um, had difficulty with dealing with that process. Um, and, and I think the final one that I'll just sort of, uh, start with is, is, is the Miller One judgment was, I think, significant. The idea that there has to be a piece of legislation which triggers Article 50, that it wasn't something that the executive could do, I think it created this, this, this legitimate expectation for Parliament that it would be involved in this process. It triggers the process, it's going to have a say at every stage of it. So I think that was significant. Now if we look at Parliament, yes there were conflicts within what Parli how Parliament um, uh, uh, reacted to this, but I think there was also quite a significant amount of cross-parliamentary parliamentary consensus on both sides, on both sides of the debate. Um, 
So, for example, we see the work of the exiting of the EU, exiting of the European Union Committee, of Hillary, Hillary Benz Committee. Um, and this was quite effective insofar as it was a committee which didn't always agree amongst itself, but it was very effective at getting information out there. It made the government defend its position much more rigorously than it would have been had to. So, for example, with the Operation Yellowhammer uh, report, in the end, Michael Gove had to come to that committee and explain what was going on. So there was, this, there was a way in which these committees did work and raised the public awareness of this. Um, but I think in the end, where the difficulty lay is those committees couldn't, in effect, penetrate into the government's approach and sort of force the government to do something which it, it didn't want to do. And I think that sort of re reinforces Ruth's point about how intransigent the government was and sort of the approach to which they took to this. Going back to Miller 1, I think why that was significant is as I said, it gave Parliament this idea that it's going to be involved in the process and it wants to take, take have its say. And we saw that in, in the European Union Withdrawal Act, for example, the Dominic Grieve Amendment, which proposed this sort of idea that there has to be a meaningful vote at the end of it and that the government couldn't simply introduce the withdrawal agreement through secondary legislation. These were real changes to the way in which Parliament functioned, but ultimately could have been part of the problem when we take it further down the line. They created this blockage in Parliament, because Parliament wouldn't pass the vote in the end because of there was, there was, there was no consensus on this. And I suppose, very finally, the procedural innovations that we saw the use of the humble address, the role of the speaker, it would be interesting to hear about a bit more about that this afternoon, uh, but how that has, has, how that actually affected the way in which the Brexit process came. So I would say that MPs and Parliament wasn't without influence, but that influence has come at a price. I think this idea of a Parliament which is looked at, this Parliament versus the people narrative, which very much developed at the back end of the last Parliament and into the general election, I think is quite corrosive in terms of our um, constitution and political processes. Um, and I think also it's difficult to see how in the future relationship with the way in which the government is currently Set, setting itself up, that there is very limited accountability of happening with, you know, the Prime Minister hasn't been to the Liaison Committee yet, for example, um, and how this is going to be addressed, I think, is going to be a real challenge, because I, I go back to really my, my, my final point would be that we don't know, we, we won't, we're not talking about leave or remain or deal or no deal, we're now talking about something else, about the future relationship, and I think it's going to be just as polarised, and it's going to be interesting to see how Parliament can respond to this. Thank you very much. Um, to step back from some of the detail, I suppose, and look at the effect of the process. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about the primacy of Parliament, the, the sovereignty of Parliament, but I wonder during all of that whether we really mean it. Uh, when Parliament did take back control, it was dubbed a rogue Parliament, and found that it actually couldn't decide on its own on something. Sarah, do you think that actually it, it proved in a way that you need the executive to make the decisions and Parliament's job is a bit of tweaking? Um, yes, I think that, that's it. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the job of Parliament is to try and persuade the government to change its mind or to change the government, ultimately, and that is, that is what happened here. So, uh, but I think been, Bill talked earlier about um, paralysis and, and, you know, it was sort of blaming MPs for that, but that was the result of the general election. The, gov the government lost its majority, and that's ultimately where all this stemmed from. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I frequently use an expression which I believe to be fair, which is that the British Constitution operates as a, on the basis of parliamentary government, not government by parliament. And that was the fundamental schism, that was the divide that took place. And actually what happened, the paralysis, as you quite rightly pointed out, was that, um, and it's just a matter of fact, uh, there were more Remainers from the previous parliament and from a build-up over many years which had evolved, um, then there were people who supported the idea of leaving the European Union in parliament. Of course, that set up this clash with the referendum result, and people described this, and it's just been described as, pe I think you said it yourself, people versus parliament. In fact, of course, the outcome, and in a good democracy, this is actually 
a virtue and a, a, a sort of upland, up, as I see it, um, uh, upland sun, 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 sunny uh, outcome is the fact that uh, we now have the referendum results, as I indicated, which was in 2016. We've had this process of paralysis, whereas you quite rightly also, and Adam and others have mentioned and Sarah, we did have a process of accountability, but it was frustrated by the paralysis. You had changes in standing orders, which is a big issue, actually, in my opinion. But then on top of that, you ended up with an outcome when the general election, which was inevitable because you had to break this deadlock, actually did take place, then the British people were asked, what do you think about all this? And at any rate, a significant part of the outcome of that decision, leave aside the Corbyn factor, was actually about Brexit. There's no doubt about that. And the result of that was that the majority came through, which correlated to the outcome of the referendum. So no longer is it people versus parliament, it's parliament with a majority of 81, reflecting the outcome of a democratic vote that was taken, which does correspond to the outcome of the referendum. So we are, I'm not saying no one's gonna say, and I'm certainly not gonna say every, everything's plain and simple and you know, nothing can, uh, can, can disturb the, the equilibrium, but actually right now, the position is that with a majority of 81 and the referendum, it's no longer people versus parliament. Ruth, um, do you think that it was a, a corrosive process for the way people viewed parliament and it has actually damaged the relationship between the two? Well, look out for the next Hansel Society Audit of Political Engagement in a few weeks' time. <laughs> Get the latest results. Um, Give us a sneak preview. No, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I can't. Um, the polling company will have my hide if I did. Um, there's certainly, we have to re reflect that far greater public interest and engagement with the day-to-day -day proceedings of Parliament at a level that we have not seen. Certainly, that I can I can recall um, in the time that I've sort of been working in and around Westminster. And um, I think one of my worries about this is that scrutiny and the things that we sort of deem important in terms of the role and work of Parliament um, and scrutinising the executive, concern that for the public may come to be seen as, as obstructionism and that the value and the importance of it is lost behind all of this sort of procedural shenanigans that they struggle to understand. Um, in our last audit of political engagement, which took place sort of around the time of the first meaningful vote, so well before the gridlock set in and was, you know, we were getting these huge audiences for BBC Parliament and all the news channels and so on, 42% of the public agreed with the statement that the country's problems could be dealt with more effectively if the government didn't have to worry about votes in Parliament so much. <laughs> now, four in ten of us thought that, you know, if, 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 a year on, I suspect that may now be higher if we were to ask that same question. And I think that's the worry, is that what the public perception of Parliament, um, it had this huge opportunity to rise to the level of events, and I don't really think it did. And what would really have made the difference? Or is that just because Parliament is such an organic thing? That, or, do, or are there different ways, different procedures, different mechanisms that would have allowed Parliament to rise to the challenge? Well, I think you can go back to sort of the discussions that were taking place in the aftermath of the referendum about ways of doing this differently, about having sort of joint committees, about having, um, you know, more joint working between the Commons and the Lords, about having this sort of idea of Parliament as a sort of conference body that would draw together all the different sectors to hear and, and, and be able to um, give expression to their voice. I mean, if you think about it, if any institution was going to try and bridge this 48-52% divide in the referendum result and find a route that, let's say, 75%, 80% of us could have lived with, it was going to be Parliament. In a sense, that's, that's kind of what it's for. It's the bridge between the government and the public. It's, it's the interface. Um, through the MPs and didn't find a way to do that. Um, if anything, it exacerbated divides rather than try to, to bridge them. Adam, you're nodding through that. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I go back to the, one of the points that I made is that I think Article 50 was part of the problem. It, there was this two-year period for a parliament in which there was a very small majority, then there was no, then there was minority government, 
Um, and Article 50 was triggered before a general election was called a couple of weeks later. There was a huge period of time where there was very little inactivity in Parliament, and, and, and the government really didn't know what it wanted from those withdrawn negotiations at that point. But the EU did. The EU was very clear in terms of how, how, it, how it was going to approach that. So I think that was one part of it. And I think the other part of it is, is that, in the end, the deal became sort of very elusive. It became this idea that without the deal, we can't leave. And Parliament was finding all sorts of ways of extending that and extending that. Um, and whether that actually improved the deal that we got at the end is going to be questionable because I think that there will probably be many MPs who will be today think, I wish we'd voted for the deal back in March last year than the deal that we've got now. Um, so it, it, it's, it's become very difficult, I think, for Parliament to sort of try and understand what it could have done better or what it could have done differently within this process. Could I, could I just comment on that point because it's very important? Um, the, uh, I voted against the withdrawal agreement on three occasions because I felt that it was just completely impossible to accept the withdrawal agreement as it was then presented. In fact, my committee presented a report in March 2018 to the House which said effectively uh, that the terms and conditions on which the European Union insisted as a precondition pre of the continuing talks um, was actually unacceptable because we had left the European Union. We were in a sense in an equal, we in a sense in, in, in my opinion, in a sovereign context, equally entitled to take a view on the negotiations, not to be de de determined by the um, by, by, by the uh, European Union. And there's a history here because they adopted the same sort of view in the Common Market negotiations in 1971. But the, the, the difference between the withdrawal agreement as it is now and the present one, there are still some issues, believe me, there are some issues. Uh, Northern Ireland Protocol, I could give you a list of them, there's the European Court of Justice. There are a variety of questions which are still to be resolved. However, in the bill as introduced and passed by 122, which makes my point about the fact that Parliament has now settled it, the position. That Act of Parliament, the 2020 Act, was passed by 122. It contains two clauses which have really not been given very much consideration, but which are, in my opinion, extremely important. One is the Parliamentary Sovereignty Clause, which um, in, gives the uh, uh, re-endorsement of the parliamentary sovereignty in the context of the withdrawal agreement. And the other one is a, is a clause which gives my committee, the European Scrutiny Committee, uh, a unique power, which I'm, reflects what I said earlier about what happened, what went wrong, in my opinion, about the whittling away of the veto. Uh, between now and the end of the transitional period, uh, we're we not going to be at the table they can make regulations by qualified majority voting behind closed doors without even a transcript, let alone, a, um, if I may say to Peter Flowers there, um, the, uh, the, the proceedings being seen on television. It's completely, the, the, the European Union in the Council of Ministers operates behind closed doors. Now, the clause that's been uh, agreed by Parliament says that the European Scrutiny Committee can hold an inquiry into any matter relating to vital national interests in the course of these negotiations. From that, it then prepares a report after consulting with the other committees, and the House of Lords has an equivalent power. And the bottom line is that then, the report by the committee will then be debated on the floor of the House and voted on by the House of Commons. That is a huge step forward in terms of parliamentary scrutiny. Sarah, can I come back on a point that, that Ruth was making? I mean, although the country at the moment um, quite likes a strong government and uh, having a big majority, that's because the government has its honeymoon period still at the moment. But over time, I think people will come to feel there's actually worse for government to have a very large majority, particularly a government that shows that it is going to um, remove itself from scrutiny. I mean, that's not just removing itself from, from scrutiny before the liaison committee, but also in the way it treats journalists, for example. 
um, only giving, only wanting to include lobby journalists who are prepared to do a friendly story about government policy. So I think I think there are dangers, and that that sort of sense of the public want, thinking that it's a good idea to have a strong leader, whether they'll still feel that way in four and a half years' time, I think is very debatable. And can I ask you about one of Adam's points, which was that if MPs had backed Theresa May earlier in the process, there might have been a softer Brexit than people like yourself had are going of to course. look at now. And it did, so do you regret it? Well, of course, hindsight is a wonderful thing. But the trouble is, um, not even the Brexiteers would have been happy with it. So if you ended up with a situation where neither the people who were the, the, the key drivers for Brexit thought it represented their version of Brexit and people like me who, who came to feel that we would profoundly regret Brexit in the end, certainly wouldn't have been happy with it either. Who exactly was, was saying this is a great deal? That there just wasn't that sense that people supported it at the time. But of course, with hindsight, people like me, who, who would have liked the closest possible relationship if it had to happen, um, you know, we, we, we obviously have to be asking those questions of ourselves. Yeah. Ruth, there was um, another process of Brexit scrutiny going on, or meant to be going on, rather in the background all the way through that. And that was a process of secondary legislation. Doesn't sound very sexy or exciting. Well, However, if you're at the hand sorts of oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've whetted my appetite for it. <laughs> no, it, it, it's crucial stuff. It's crucial stuff. There were huge numbers of, of EU law that we used that had to be transferred into UK law. Uh, that was work that went, a vast task going on in the background. And how much scrutiny did that get? Uh, and should we be worried? Did it need the scrutiny? Did it get it? it? It did need the scrutiny. I mean, there were, I think, something like just over 600 Brexit statutory instruments passed. The government thought there were going to be 800 to 1,000. It, it, that those just, numbers just explain what, what sort of things we're talking about that... that Anything from sort of chemical regulations to environmental regulations about, you know, issue farming. There were a whole host of immigration instruments. Some of them were very, very technical changes, literally changing the name of, uh, of a, an administrative or regulatory body from an EU one to a UK one. One of the difficulties was when they deleted the EU one and didn't replace it with a UK one. There were concerns about sort of, you know, what was going to happen to those regulatory checks and so on. Um, there were all sorts of issues around, um, I think for, for Parliament, for the House of Commons particularly, the very technical policy detail and understanding sort of when things were repatriated back to the UK, how it was going to be done, who was going to be responsible. And on paper, it might look fine. But in practice, if you are the farmer whose who's checks on his or her animals are going to be done in a particular way by a particular regulatory body, um, you might be heavily affected by it. And the MPs might not have any great understanding of what difference the changes might, might really make. I think the House... In terms of its resources, it got an awful lot more resources, particularly on the legal side, but certainly talking sort of anecdotally to MPs who served on some of these committees, they felt that they didn't have enough policy expertise and access to policy expertise, and there wasn't enough time to spend in, in, in doing it. Um, and for us, you know, yes, there was more scrutiny of these statutory instruments than most other statutory instruments get um, because of the existence of the sifting committee. But half the statutory instruments were not subject to sifting because they were already what's called the affirmative scrutiny procedure. Much higher proportion of, of SIs were subject to that higher procedure and they arguably got less than some of the negative instruments that were then upgraded th through this sifting committee process. Um, and for us, I mean, essentially, great sifting. There's been a demand for a sifting committee from House of Commons committees for sort of 20, 30 years. The procedure Committee has frequently recommended a sifting committee, but what they effectively did was built, bolt it on to the existing inadequate scrutiny procedures. And Sarah talked about delegated legislation committees and MPs not having the expertise. I mean, delegated legislation committees, until Brexit, were traditionally seen as a bit of a punishment. You, you know, you had to serve on these because, you know, the whips told you so a few days beforehand. <laughs> You didn't get much access to papers and research to support what you were doing. And, you know, when we did our research eight, nine years ago on delegated legislation, MPs openly referred to the fact that it was basically 
you know, a, a period when they could sit in their committees and do their constituency correspondence. Yeah, you know, you can, those committees can last up to 90 minutes and they'd last 23, 24 if you're lucky. And one, one occasion we had one last about 30 seconds. I mean, you know, they're not a particularly good form of, of scrutiny. Um, but I mean, that, how that could be improved is a whole, whole huge debate in and of itself. Could, could I come back on that? But not, not against, but because I, I, this is, gets very technical. And um, we, we dealt with a broader question of sovereignty and paralysis of parliament and referendums and so on. On the more specific question, I want to give an example just to sort of illustrate the nature of the difficulty that we were up against. Um, there is a thing called the ports regulation. Now, let's not go into the detail of it, but can, if I can tell you that for, there are 47 port employers in the United Kingdom, and there are many, many trade unions. This ports regulation, which was brought in under the aegis of the European Union, which was done by qualified majority vote, was opposed by every single port employer. It was also opposed by every single trade union. It was also opposed by the government. And in the committees to which Ruth referred, we did actually get into the guts of it because we said, well, what on earth is going on when nobody in the UK wants this and yet it's being imposed upon us, which is in a sense the essence of the European question in terms of sovereignty and legislation. And in fact, it did eventually go through. And um, what I'm saying is that the same applies with regard to things like the chemical regulations because although they get frightfully techy and they really are sometimes incredibly complicated and you've got enormous working parties in the chemical industry and you've got people from different parts of the European Union competing for what they think would be the right kind of regulations to have. It's a hugely important question in each case for the people concerned. But actually the bottom line is that what is being done is being done in a way which does require some proper scrutiny and the real root of the problem is would we have brought in that kind of legislation on our own bat as an independent country or not? That to me is the crucial question. So the issues can be technical, but they can also relate to the question of sovereignty. Uh, Sarah, do you want just, to come in quickly because I, I want I, other I people to ask questions. If the public realise how profoundly shocking delegated legislation committees are, I say go and sit in on one. It's not just that MPs, the majority of them, seem to be doing their emails and not listening at all. It's the fact that if you're somebody who genuinely does have expertise and wants to sit on a committee, I always thought that I would be put on delegated legislation committees relating to health and social care. I would end up on one on sort of secondary legislation about double taxation in Oman or something like that, about which, you know, I knew I Is it deliberate? nothing. And I was not able to actually make any meaningful contribution, and particularly when the documents were presented at such short notice. Um, and I would be actively kept off things where I might actually be awkward and table a, an amendment of some description. And so I think this is, this is the way they operate. And if you do want to muscle yourself in on a delegated legislation committee, you have to swap with one of your colleagues. Otherwise, you can go along where you don't get a vote. Um, so it is, it is a profoundly shocking um, scrutiny um, gap, I'm afraid. Great. Right. We have a few minutes left for some questions. I've got a very eager one there, you, sir. If you could introduce yourself first. Yes. Um, the Vote Leave campaign um, campaigned on the slogan, let's take back control. Now, almost four years after the referendum, would the panelists please tell us who they think we are and are we in the process of taking back control? Well, yes, um, we have taken back control and indeed the 2020 Act, which was passed um, recently, uh, does just that. And of course, the com I'm getting technical here, but we left the European Union on the 31st of January because the commencement order was um, passed and therefore that is the technical moment when it happened. The, the whole question of the broader issue of do we take control as a country I think I can encapsulate it by my reference back to the referendum and also to the democratic process of the general election where you get a confluence of the two things. The actual question of how we take back control in terms of legislation 
is obviously going to be um, something which will evolve as we move forward based on the principle of de parliamentary democracy. Parliamentary government means bills will be brought in, they're already being brought in on agriculture, on, on this, fisheries, all sorts of things are going to go on. The negotiations have to take place running parallel to that. But the legislation will be made by parliamentarians who have been elected in a general election, who have actually decided, including some in Labour Leave marginals, who actually voted with to, to, to voted for Conservative MPs. So the net result is we will take back control as a democracy within the framework of our sovereignty. And I said yesterday, for me at any rate, I used the expression at another conference, that um, the uh, sovereignty of, of Parliament is the throne on which the Mother of Parliament sits. I hope that doesn't sound too, too, too literary. Uh, Adam, would you like to? Yeah, I mean, I would say, with respect to taking back control, I mean, we took back control by domesticating a huge tranche of EU law, um, which, so we, we, we still maintain what I would term a Europeanized regulatory structure so on. The real question is who the we are. Well, the, it, is, it is who the we are. And, and I, think, I think to some extent is, is we have elected a parliament who is now going to, as the bill says, they're introducing lots of new legislation, but much of our legislation is to fill the gaps which we need to fill because we are no longer part of the European Union. So we need to have regulatory but governments. But it will be on our terms. But it will be on our terms. But then also I think the flip side of that is, is and I think this is the, the, the positive part of it, is Parliament and MPs will no longer be able to blame Brussels for laws which they don't like. The responsibility now lies Thank here. Heavens. Uh, well, that, that may be the case, but we, you know that, that also exposes, I think, MPs. Well, and why, I think, not? And why lot, not? And a lot of those MPs in those new constituents, in those, the Red Wall constituents which were elected, are maybe going to face some difficult choices when it comes to the future relationship about whether they put constituents in your party first, if there are going to be issues around just-in-time supply trades and things like this. So um, the we, I think, is Parliament. But I think the Parliament is also going to have to accept that responsibility for, the, for those decisions and, and, and not blame the other party. I agree with that. Right. Another question? Um, Lord Boswell. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure whether I should uh, let you pick the question, but, but yes. Yeah. Maybe it's just that he needs to be potential subjects for academic study. One is the dissonance between initial undertakings by the then Brexit Secretary David Davis for the fullest possible sharing of information and by implication confidences with the EU committees collectively and their failure to do so. The second one is the comparative performance of the European Parliament and the Verhofstadt um, consent um, circus with um, the Barnier negotiating team and how that works. A further point, picking up what Ruth said, is of course it's not only delegated legislation, but I think anyway, and not necessarily specifically in a Brexit context, Parliament is wrestling with treaty scrutiny and what it means and effectively. We had one last night under discussion. Um, the, the general question I want to throw back is a worry that when Parliament is tested, or when our Constitution is tested, I'm fond of saying it only works, it works very well until it doesn't. <laughs> um, and when you have a, a substantial test, be it Brexit, or dare I say it, I win a prize for being the first to say it today, <laughs> coronavirus, do we have a propensity and readiness to row together and suspend some of our difficulties and suspend some of the institutional difficulties Differences between the houses to try and get the best effect. Um, I'm thinking slightly of a wartime context, and if we don't, does it really make any difference? Ruth, mm. one for you. I think on the latter point, I mean, if just to take coronavirus as an example, I, th I think we probably institutionally do have that because it's not a terribly partisan issue. Yeah. And so long as it's not a part, a strong party divide, then I think the, the, the members across the parties in the Commons can come together, the two houses can come together, there's a more cooperative atmosphere uh, that exists. I think when it becomes a heavily partisan issue as Brexit was, then I think that's where we have, we have the problem. Um, and that goes to sort of broader issues about the, the government's sort of dominance, particularly in the Commons, of, of initiative, 
um, the way in which the usual channels work, the attitude, yeah, cultural and attitudinal approach of, of government um, and their sort of experience and expectation that they, they, they get to dominate even when they haven't got a, a majority. Um, and you're right, in terms of things like treaty scrutiny, delegated legislation, these big challenges, these were areas in need of reform even before Brexit. And they were minority interests. They were minority interests inside Parliament. They were even greater minority interests outside Parliament. You know, when we launched our book on delegated legislation, it was impossible to interest many people in it. People like Bill was a rare exception. Um, I know Mark Darcy, I think, was the only journalist to attend. Um, you know, it was it was nerd central. Um, you know, it's very very difficult now. Of course, statutory instruments. You know, crikey, it's front page news. We even got it in Vanity Fair and GQ. You know, um, so I think that you know Parliament has. These are the essential things, you know, delegated legislation, treaty scrutiny and trade agreements, financial scrutiny, we're going to have the budget, how much sort of attention do MPs pay to the financial scrutiny process, the budget, the estimates, do they have the procedures to enable them to do that kind of scrutiny effectively? Those are the core tasks of being a parliamentarian, and they are not being carried out as well as they could be. And it, short of a very radical reforming leader of the house who's prepared to take the, uh, the, the, the bull by the horns and, and try and initiate some proposals themselves. It's very difficult at the moment to see where the impetus for reform and how it's all going to be galvanised, where it's going to come from because of the way the House of Commons operates. And I think there is that, that question about crisis management and risk management. And it's, it's, it's not in these kinds of dangerous situations around sort of this virus situation. But to me, the bigger issue is the reputational risk. The reputational risk to how Parliament is perceived externally, I think, is quite serious. It's worse now than it was at the time of the MPs' expenses scandal in some respects. And unless Parliament recognises that that is a collective problem, um, I don't see that we're, gonna, we're really going get to get a solution. Right. Other questions? Um, gentlemen over here? In the glasses, yes? Yes, you, sir. <laughs> You're lucky, Dave. Hello. Hi, I'm Blaise Bakish, and I used to work for the European Conservatives and Reformist Group in the European Parliament, which houses the UK Conservative delegation. Um, you talk about taking back control, but um, uh, certainly in, in, with respect to the views of the Conservative Party, in that it's the party of business, but how can it ignore the wishes of business um, who explicitly state that the British economy is based on just implies just-in-time supply chains, which are based on frictionless movement, and so you need to have an acceptance of EU regulations. So, if, how have we taken back control if we are accepting EU rules, paying into the budget, but then haven't we just voted for not having a say in how those rules are made? That's just a control um, uh, point. And secondly, a procedure point. Um, I think it's a bit of a facade that after the general election, all of these conservative MPs then scrutinized Johnson's deal and said, well, okay, well, this is, a, this is an all right deal. Um, we'll vote it through. Wasn't it the case that the reason these conservative MPs were chosen in the first place was that they promised to accept any deal that Johnson put forward on the table? So I think there's a lack of scrutiny, even less scrutiny uh, in, in, from, a procedure, from a procedural point of view. Cash, well, just I, accepting it. well, actually, interestingly, um, it isn't just a question of accepting it. The entire process from the very beginning, and I've been back, as I said, I've been on the committee 35 years, I've seen the way in which the whole of our democratic process, the decisions that have been taken about legislation have been made behind closed doors, by cabals within the uh, European context where, for example, qualified majority voting uh, has dictated inevitably under Section 2 of the European Communities Act what legislation we were bound to accept. It wasn't an option. Once it became uh, a qualified majority vote in the Council of Ministers or consensus, you want to read Simon Hicks in, in Vote Watch to see how it operates in practice. But, but this, this vote, the, this last bill that has gone through... Boris well, it deal. went through because it actually represented the breakthrough, which I described earlier, 
there being a paralysis, we have now got a point where as a result of the democratic decision of the British people in individual constituencies uh, wanting to, to get Brexit done, to put that broad expression, and the bottom line is that we have now got uh, uh, by 122, it wasn't even a majority of 81, it was a majority of 122. Sarah, but they also had to sign up to say they'd be prepared to vote through no deal, um, even though we know how damaging no deal Well, we have things no called manifestos, Sarah, it's not exactly but un I think unusual. That, but the point is, that actually, to, to say in advance you couldn't stand unless you were prepared to embrace that, I, th I think is worrying. Um, but I think you also mentioned, very importantly, just-in-time supply chains. I mean, we have very bumpy path ahead of us because we have the ch twin challenge of coronavirus and I suspect we may find ourselves in a similar position to Italy within a matter of possibly weeks um, and on top of that the enormous challenge of the, the bandwidth for government to be managing the Brexit process and, and ha saying in advance that they would be prepared to do no deal. Well, that they would do no deal, not that they would be prepared to, sorry. And they have to be more flexible. That may be totally inappropriate um, if we find that there's a profound impact um, from the coronavirus. They, they should be more flexible. Great. Well, we have to wrap it up there. But, thank you. Um, thank you to all of our panel, Dr. Sarah Wallison. Mm -hmm. So Bill Cash, mm -hmm. Professor Adam Sugar, and Dr. Lucas.